Welcome to episode number 14 in this series on the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Ave Virgo Potens, ora pro nobis. Hail Virgin Most Powerful, pray for us. Last episode, we spoke about the offertory, where we began, the importance of offering our hearts and our minds and our own petitions and sacrifices in union with the priest as we, as the people, are presenting the bread and the wine to the priest as well as the collection from our labors, from the earth and our sweat and our blood and our gifts comes the possibility of offering the mass and having the necessary gifts, namely the bread and wine, as well as the money to keep the lights on and these kinds of things for uh, the purpose of the holy sacrifice of the mass, for the purpose of the sanctification of the people, the salvation of souls. Again, every mass is this kind of explosion of grace into the world. And so every person that participates by giving money as well as by giving that which is necessary for to, to purchase bread and wine and to keep the mass going and to have the vestments and all of this is a very good act, not only for yourself, not only because of your role as a Catholic as well as the necessity of supporting the church, but at the same time for the sake of the world that so many graces come into the world because of it. We also spoke about the presentation of the bread and the wine coming from the people as well as the, the petitions that come from the people and are in union with that of the priest. We spoke about as well the uh, self-immolation of the priest, the incensing of the gifts, the washing of the hands, the orate fratres, the prayer over the gifts, and many other things, including as well the water, why that's added to the wine as well as other actions, as well as the silence of the priest and all of these things, hopefully to help us to better understand the importance of this part of the Mass, the Offertory, that it's not just preparing a table, but rather it is preparing the Most Holy Altar that will be then that which is used for the sake of the sacrifice of the Mass itself. As well, we're preparing the hearts, uh, the altar of our own hearts as we do so. So this moved us all the way to the preface. We will begin the preface and hopefully we will get all the way to the end of the first prayer of the Eucharistic prayer. The preface is a part of the Mass that kind of introduces the Eucharistic prayer. It's a transition from that preparation and from the liturgy of the Word and the Creed and the homily that we just had heard in the Gospel reading into the Eucharistic prayer. Now we are beginning this holy sacrifice in a particular way, or at least the most substantial part of the holy sacrifice in this ritual. The preface is one that also unites us, not only in this kind of transition, but also in, in terms of the, the liturgical season or the feast day that we're celebrating, because that very much is emphasized within the context of the preface. In the preface, our speech becomes a canticle or a poem, in a sense, that is a love letter from the church, the bride, to her bridegroom, the Lamb of God. It is a joy-filled poem of love and gratitude directed to him by recalling and incorporating the mysteries of our salvation. So give that thought. Listen to those words the next time you are present for a preface because those words are oftentimes glorious as well as rather profound. If you listen to some of the ways in which they express the mysteries of the church, specifically prefaces that occur, for instance, at the vigil of the Easter or prefaces that occur at uh, the Holy Trinity Sunday, it's 
expressing in, in, in very beautiful ways what we believe, the depths of our church, as well as making those beliefs in this sense a, a kind of poem or this kind of gift, this kind of love letter to God. So it's not only what we believe, kind of like the creed, right? It's just this line after line of these mysteries, but rather it's transforming that importance, uniting it to the season or the feast that we're celebrating at that point, and then transforming it into this love letter of sorts so that we're giving of ourselves and we're professing these mysteries and we're as well living out the liturgical calendar all throughout this preface in a beautiful way that is one that is hopefully very pleasing to God. In the Old Mass, or even in the New Mass, when the priest is facing with the people towards the tabernacle, called Ad Orientum, or to the east, he would not turn to the people at this time. Although the dialogue is said, the greeting from the priest is said, the Lord be with you, and generally always in a mass where the priest was facing with the people, rather than facing the people, when he was facing with the people, he would always turn around for the Lord be with you. But that would not be done at this moment when we begin the preface with the Lord be with you and with your spirit. And the reason is because at this point, the church considers the priest to have already entered into the cloud of sanctity, like Moses, in a sense, who climbed the mountain and ascended into this cloud of sanctity with God. And so it is not a time to turn back towards the people, but rather to keep one's entire focus there on God himself. So just realize that I only say that for, one, the historical context, but also to recognize that this dialogue and this preface now we have begun in a sense this movement into the eucharistic prayer and the most profound part of the mass as i've said and so there is not this turning away but rather this real focus real dedication on god hopefully we also internally are living this out as well that we are focused much more in giving of ourselves instilled much more on God and his presence and his love and what is occurring here at this altar than we have been throughout the Mass, that it's only been building and building from the readings and the gospel and all the way back to the Gloria and the first, the Lord be with you, all the way up until this point. The people would only see his countenance again after the marbles of consecration has been, uh, have been consummated. In other words, the priest would only be seeing his face after the consecration. That was then when he would turn back around at one point, when it was time to. In the same way, Moses was not seen until after God had completed that which with, with which he desired with Moses, and then Moses comes down, descends the mountain. He's glowing in this spectacular way. So, tying together the actions of the priest as well as the ways in which he does not turn or the times he does not turn with what we find in the Old Testament, with what we find in the New Testament, with what we find theologically as to what's going on in various parts of the Mass. The priest again says, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, the people respond. Then he says, lift up your hearts, to which they respond, we lift them up to the Lord. Quote, let us give thanks to the Lord our God, in quote, it is right and just, the people respond. This is the opening dialogue of the preface. The hands are raised at the Lord be with you. And this is done 
for a couple of reasons. One, because again, the priest is in a particular, in a particularly intercessorial part in the mass at this point. Likewise, it is also an expression of Christ crucified. We are nearing that ultimate part of the sacrifice, and therefore this opening in this Oron's position of the hands is clearly an indication and in pointing to Christ crucified. Likewise, we are to raise our hearts and our minds as we raise our hands. As I have mentioned in a previous class, the hands in a sense represent all of the body because of all of the different events and works that they participate in. Almost all of the works that I engage in is going to be taking use of my hands. So they incorporate as an image all of the body and all of the soul. And so lifting the hands is an expression of this lifting of my entire self to God in prayer and giving of him entirely at this mass and in this sacrifice. The body is an image of the soul in prayer. That is something I think we should keep in mind. This quote as well is one that comes from scripture, the idea of raising one's heart. If you see Lamentations chapter 3, verse 40, 41, that will be made clear. Therefore, we lift up our hearts with our crucified Lord. We should be completely divesting ourselves from worldly concerns and thoughts in order to belong to God alone. The saints and the angels in heaven have no concern but to give all praise to God. They are perfectly, always gazing upon Him, perfectly, always centered on Him in the beatific vision. Even if, let's say, Saint Gabriel, like he does at the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin, at the announcing, that is, of Christ who will be conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, even if he appears to you as such, to speak to you, he is still perfectly always gazing in this beatific vision of God. Likewise, our minds should be set on heavenly things alone. God, therefore, the dialogue between the priest and the people should move us to this jubilant praise of God that is made audible in the preface prayer. So the preface is not only uniting, as I said, many things like the liturgical season or the feast day in which we are, as well as this love letter or this self-gift that is both joy-filled as well as loving to God, but it is also this exclamation of the salvation that God is giving us. We have been asking that our hearts be made humble, that our sins be forgiven, that our minds be set on God. And so the preface, in a sense, is a contestation of this, is an answer, is a response to this which God has given us in answering our prayers. So we return to Him with this jubilant praise of a love note that it also incorporates the misty mysteries of our faith. One example of a preface I will go through here briefly. Quote, It is truly right and just our duty and our salvation always and everywhere to give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, through Christ our Lord. For he assumed at his first coming the lowliness of human flesh, already entering into the mysteries of our faith, the Incarnation, and so fulfilled the design you formed long ago, and opened for us the way to eternal salvation, that when he comes again in glory and majesty and all is at last made manifest, we who watch for, the la for that day may inherit the great promise in which now we dare to hope. And so with angels and archangels, with thrones and dominions, and with all the hosts and powers of heaven, we sing the hymn of your glory, as without end we acclaim. From the preface, we move into 
the Sanctus, which is very applicable because we're speaking about how the saints and the angels, they are professing without end, holy, holy, holy. They are professing without end this glorious praise of our God. As I just mentioned, in this gaze that they per permanently have on God in the beatific vision, that is a gaze of love, of adoration, of perfect and true worship and gratitude. Sanctus, or holy, holy, holy. I think we all know this, how this part of the Mass goes. But where does this come from? And why do we make sure that it is a part of every Mass? This is the conclusion of the preface. Holy, holy, holy. This is a glorious hymn of praise that is taken from the book of Isaiah, from his vision of heaven, where the seraphim, that is the angels that are surrounded, surrounding God's throne that are most near God, the highest choir of angels, were crying out in adoration. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Quote from the book of Revelation, chapter 4. And the four living creatures had each of them six wings, and round about and within they are full of eyes, and they rested not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is, who is to come. And when those living creatures gave glory and honor and benediction to him that sitteth on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty ancients fell down before him that sitteth on the throne and adored him that live forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, because Thou hast created all things. For Thy will they were and have been created. End quote. That is verses 11, 8 through 11. So we see from Scripture, both Old Testament, both New Testament, putting them together. Isaiah has a vision of heaven as well in the book of Revelation, which is John's vision of heaven in essence, as well as the heavenly liturgy that takes place in heaven. We still here now on earth, every Mass, are fulfilling this by using the same words, by giving glory to God, by recognizing that what we are taking part of is truly something divine, is truly something spectacular, is truly something heavenly. We do it here on earth, they do it in heaven, we do it in a united way because we are all united to Christ through grace. We too never cease to cry out, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. End quote. If you think about all of the masses that occur throughout all of the world, for instance, probably just at your own home parish or maybe just in your hometown, you know of various mass times, some maybe even some odd ones. For instance, sometimes you'll find a late one on Sunday, 4 p.m., 6 p.m., even 8 or 9 or 11 p.m. This occurs at times for uh, the masses that are for college kids, those who procrastinate far too much. And so you, you, we recognize that all of these different mass times, just in one town, then multiply that by this, the, the amount of towns in the state, then multiply how many states there are, as well as how many countries these masses are taking place, and then take over as well the mass changes, or excuse me, the time changes that occur throughout uh, the world. Clearly, in heaven and on earth, we continue Holy, 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 Lord God of heaven and earth. In other words, we continue this phrase because of all of these masses that are said throughout all of the world, with all of these mass times and time changes, we're always 
pronouncing this. The church never ceases to pronounce. The church never ceases to have mass at every moment of every day. Mass is going on. Mass here, this conduit of grace for the sake of the salvation of the world is continuing on. Without the mass, without the consistency and the continuation of mass, this world would cease to exist. There would be so much sin, so much evil. It would be so suffocating that the whole world, creation itself, could not continue. But with the Mass, yes, we can continue on. With the Mass, yes, we can convert souls. With the Mass, yes, we can change the culture. We can change the landscape of souls, of countries, of the world in general. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God of hosts. In addition, you might have noticed we say this word Hosanna, but perhaps that's not something that we know exactly what that means. Again, it is another Hebrew word and it means technically help, save, redeem, but because of time and the way in which it's been used, it becomes this acclamation again of jubilation, of joy, of excitement. Hail, glory, praise be to him. This is more adequate of a translation. Although it is no longer done, traditionally the priest would make the sign of the cross during this hymn in order to connect the crucifixion of our Lord in time to the presentation of the same sacrifice on the altar. So during the Sanctus, and specifically when we would say, Blessed is he who comes. In the Old Mass, the priest would make a sign at that point. One, because only by the cross and the grace that comes from it is it possible that we are blessed. But in addition to this, that cross is what unites us here on earth to those that are in heaven. As well, it is the mass that unites us all the way back to that crucifixion that took place 2,000 years ago. From the preface and the holy, 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 then we move to finally the Eucharistic prayer. The Eucharistic prayer, although there are many Eucharistic prayers, there is one, two, three, and four, which are kind of the main Eucharistic prayers that are used. But in addition to this, there are others as well that are offered, as well as allowed by the church. One, throughout the vast majority of the church, only one has been used. In fact, one has been used throughout the Western church for many, many centuries, and that is Eucharistic prayer one also called the Roman Canon. It is the standard of the Western Rite. This is the standard Eucharistic prayer. As well, not only because of the historical context, but we call this the Roman Canon, and that word Canon means standard. It means a read of measurement as well. It means a couple of different things, but when you hear the word Canon, you should think of not only a law, but also a standard. Therefore, we find that in the Roman Canon, that we have a standard of what a Eucharistic prayer is, and in fact, this is the standard of the Eucharistic prayer in general. Pope Gregory I, before 600 AD, instituted the Roman Canon as it had been for centuries. Now, we have recently, in 1970, altered, in actually a fair amount of ways, the prayers as well as the actions of the priest in the Roman Canon. But it was the same from year 600 all the way till 1970. At least almost exactly the same, if not exactly the same. There is such benefit in praying the words, I think, that our own 
saints, our own brothers and sisters, prayed. And so when I, as a priest, am offering the Mass and offering with the Roman canon, it is a, a true source of delight and a true source of kind of a humbling uh, to me to know that when I pronounce these words, that this is, these are the words that St. John Vianney said, these are the words that St. Padre Pio said, and so many other saints throughout the centuries of the Church. It is such a profound reality that not only are we united to them in the fact that we are in grace and they also now are in glory in heaven or in purgatory, but we are also united in the same action and in the same words and in the same ritual and in the same holy sacrifice of the Mass and the same holy sacrifice of our Lord. So there's so many different levels of unity that takes place within the heart of Christ through Holy Mother Church. Traditionally, this entire prayer was said in a low voice, audible only to the priest and perhaps maybe the servant. Because of the sanctity of the words and the priestly nature of this part of the Mass, it emphasizes the awe and admiration for the words, actions, and a fundamental reality of the sacrifice that takes place. Remember, as I've mentioned, silence itself is a type of veil that covers so that those words that are so sacred and so necessary for the salvation to take place are not becoming common and mundane, something that just everybody says or everybody knows or people just subconsciously just rattle off because they're so used to these words. <coughs> Excuse me. The silence also mimicked the consecration because the senses are incapable of perceiving the presence of the body and the blood of Jesus that are hidden under the appearance of bread and wine. So in the same way that the people could not hear the words that the priest is proclaiming in the Eucharistic prayer, likewise, we cannot see or perceive this transubstantiation, that is this changing of substance from bread and wine into the body and the blood, the soul and divinity of Christ. We don't look at a consecrated host and say, oh yeah, that's definitely the body and blood of Christ because of what I see, because of the shape, or I see his beard or something to this effect, but rather we are incapable of seeing and perceiving that transubstantiation, that change. But our faith is what enables us to see and perceive truly this to be the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity of our Lord. So the silence also mimicked the reality of the transubstantiation that takes place and our inability to perceive that transubstantiation. Additionally, the voice of the priest is not heard by the faithful even though they participate in the holy sacrifice of the Mass through their unity with the priest and his prayers by a devout disposition and an internal and external intention of prayer and adoration. Christ often prayed in private and apart from his apostles, sight and hearing. However, he was still united to them. However often, I'm sure, he offered the prayers for them. Although, as I said, the Roman canon was changed in 1970, and many of the prayers or many of the actions of the priest, as I also said, have altered in some way, there is still a lot of similarities, and for the purposes of this episode, as well as this series in general, we will use now the ordinary form of the Mass and the Roman canon that is therein. So we will use the changes as they have taken place. Though I will perhaps mention what a priest might have done in the old Mass at a certain prayer, or what a prayer may have said in distinction to what it says now.
Let us open up this Eucharistic prayer, the Roman canon. The first prayer, quote, To you, therefore, most merciful Father, we make humble prayer and petition through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, that you accept and bless. At that moment, the priest would then bless the gifts. These gifts, these offerings, these holy and unblemished sacrifices, which we offer you firstly for your holy Catholic Church, be pleased to grant her peace, to guard, unite, and govern her throughout the whole world, together with your servant, Francis our Pope, Robert our Bishop, or the name of the bishop that is local to that diocese, and all those who, holding to the truth, hand on the Catholic and apostolic faith." End quote. We always pray through Jesus Christ as the Catholic Church, and especially within the context of the liturgy, as I've said, it is the Church that is united to Christ in an intimate way that allows us to be able to offer a liturgy at all. It is only by Him and through Him and because of Him that liturgy is possible, just like it is only by Him and through Him and with Him that salvation is possible. The priest blesses the bread and wine which he calls gifts and offerings. Remember, not only does the priest offer them as we discussed in some detail at the offertory in the preparation of the gifts in the altar, but then he even blesses the gifts again. And in the Old Mass, one of the changes is that you would see the priest bless those gifts several times with several signs of the cross over them. Here and now is only one before the consecration or the transubstantiation takes place. They are called holy and unblemished sacrifices on top of being called gifts and offerings. Clearly, we understand that they are gifts and they are offerings. This is important to realize because a gift or an offering, this can be of, of many sorts. It can be a, a gift or an offering of my own words, of my own self, of my own blood, of my own time. But that differs from a sacrifice. But notice that the bread and the wine are called both a gift and an offering as well as a sacrifice. If you remember, a sacrifice is a physical object with an internal value that is offered to God, but that is altered substantially or destroyed entirely. So this bread and this wine, how is this destroyed entirely or altered substantially? In other words, it's not only a gift, it's not only something that we are offering to God, we have received from Him and then give back to Him, but in addition to this, it is also a sacrifice, and the reason why is because of the transubstantiation. I'll mention this again and again, hopefully to help us to remember truly what's taking place. At the Mass, it's not only the sacrifice of our Lord, this most intimate and necessary sacrifice for our salvation, but it is also a ritual sacrifice. In other words, we take this bread and we take this wine, and they cease to be bread, they cease to be wine after the transubstantiation the consecration of those gifts. This is why we can call them sacrifices as well, because they are substantially and entirely changed or destroyed because it ceases to be bread and it ceases to be wine. Still looks like it, still tastes like it, still feels like it, but it is not it. It is rather the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity of our Lord. In the second part of this prayer, we find a petition for the Holy Catholic Church to have peace, to be guarded, united, and governed. So the first prayer is to and for Holy Mother Church, that we be further united, that we live our life here on earth as it already is being lived in heaven by those who have gone before us, and that is in peace, with perfect protection. The more that we are in peace as the members of the Church, 
the more that the church in general is not being attacked by other governments as well as by various other religions and other things, the more likely and more efficiently, perhaps, we are able to fulfill our mission in the salvation of souls. This isn't always the case. God is able to work through great tribulations and trials. In fact, I don't know that the church has ever grown near as rapidly as it did in the first three centuries. And that was very tumultuous times because of all of the martyrdoms and persecutions. We pray that she may have peace. As St. Augustine defines peace as the tranquility of order. We pray as well that she be guarded, governed, united. All of this is important. We pray for Holy Mother Church first. We pray that she be protected from enemies, both spiritual and corporal. That she be confirmed in her unity to Christ and with all of the members of the hierarchy and the faithful. That she be governed by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, working in and through the Pope, bishops, and priests, and the faithful. This prayer also emphasizes the importance of the truth in this endeavor. Truth unites us, illuminates us, and binds us to Christ. We pray for the Pope and Bishop to express also our unity with them that always the church is a unified church. Christ has found one body that is built upon the rock who is Peter, not multiple. Christ does not have these individual separated relationships with each person, but rather he has an intimate relationship with each person distinctly, while at the same time, always within the context as well of the Holy Church that he has constructed and built for the sake of the salvation of souls. So we are not only praying for the church in general, but also we are praying for those that make up the church, the individuals as well, that not only the church in general have peace and greater union and be governed well, but also that all of the individuals within the church have this same. This first prayer is continued then, quote, Remember, Lord, your servants. At this moment, there is a time of silence, while the priest, as well as all of the people, should be giving consideration to those who are living that they particularly want to offer in this Mass, as well as those particularly that have been commended to them to pray for. So perhaps you are a godparent. This would be a great time for you at the moment of this silence in the first Eucharistic prayer of the Roman Canon to be considering the names of those godchildren that you have. As well, perhaps somebody has asked you that day or that week or that month to pray for them. Think of their names as well at this time. Perhaps you have a child that has fallen away from the faith or a spouse or some other person as well. Include them. Maybe you have a coworker that has been very sick or maybe you have an enemy of some sort. Pray for them. Give consideration to all of the names and those especially who have committed themselves to you in your prayers. Then after the silence, the priest continues, and all gathered here, in other words, specifically here in this church, whose faith and devotion are known to you. For them we offer you the sacrifice of praise, or they offer it for themselves and all who are dear to them, for the redemption of their souls, in hope of health and well-being, and paying their homage to you, the eternal God, living and true. End quote. The blessings of the Mass also affect people at differing degrees, and we have already discussed how the various fruits of the Mass are able to help various people, those that are within the church, those that are without the church, as well those that are particularly there, the priest himself in a particular way, as well as the ones for whom that Mass is being offered. 
We pray first for those that are committed to our prayers, and then we pray for those that are related to us or connected to us by friendship or familial bonds. Note well, we pray for redemption of the soul before we pray for the well-being of the body. This is a good thing, a good principle in general to know, that oftentimes when the, prayer, when the church has something that is ordered, for instance, let's say there's many options like option one, option two, option three of Eucharistic prayers, and option four, and like I said, others. It is the first option that is more preferred. The second option, which is a little bit less, but more preferred still from those that are subsequent to it. So in other words, the church orders things or orders options in terms of preference. So likewise, when we pray for the redemption of one's soul, before we pray for the well-being of their body, that we understand that that soul is more important, that we prefer the salvation of their soul more than the health of their body. That if we were to give the choice one or the other, we're always going to choose, hopefully, the salvation of one's soul. The conclusion of the first prayer then. Quote, In communion with those whose memory we venerate, especially the glorious ever-Virgin Mary, Mother of our God and Lord Jesus Christ, and blessed Joseph, her spouse, your blessed apostles, and martyrs Peter and Paul, Andrew, James, John, Thomas, James, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon and Jude, Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus, Cornelius, Cyprian, Lawrence, Chrysogonus, John and Paul, Cosmos and Naming and all your saints. We ask that through their merits and prayers in all things we may be defended by your protecting help. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. End quote. Now, some of that is optional. For instance, once we begin with listing the saints after Peter, Paul, and Andrew, so James, John, etc., all of those names can be omitted. And so perhaps you might hear the Roman canon, but without those names, and it's not as if the priest is doing anything that is against the church. As well, through Christ our Lord, amen, is something that can be omitted. In the past, both through Christ our Lord, amen, as well as all of those names of the saints were always included, and that was not an option to omit them. This most beautiful conclusion to the first prayer recalls and gives due veneration to many who have an essential role in our salvation. God chooses to save souls, but he does so by the use of humans as instruments and conduits. This we have spoken about all the way from the first episode and perhaps a few different times throughout the episodes up until this point. But to reiterate it is important. We are in communion with the saints while we are in the state of grace. We are truly, uniquely, and intimately bound to them and with them by way of Christ and His most precious blood. Christ has chosen to establish a relationship with each of us, and He does so through the context of the church. We are united to Him in and through the church, the community, the assembly. We are never more united to those, perhaps I would say, those that are in heaven, than when we are in the Mass. Firstly, as these saints are named, we mention Mary, as it is right and just. She is the only one that deserves, if you go back all the way to episode one, that hyper-veneration above all other saints, all other angels. She is the highest of creatures that has been elevated above all. Secondly, and it is right and just, of course, because of many reasons. Firstly, because of what she has done in terms of our salvation and salvation history that it is by and through her that salvation comes into the world. Christ receives his humanity from her. She is the mother of God. She is the mother of all creatures, she, or excuse me, all Christians. She is also the queen of all creation. She has such an important and significant role. Never should we underestimate the role of Our, our Lady. Never should we underestimate her power and her use in our own protection as well as in our own prayers. 
So, rightly so, we give her veneration. Secondly, then, we speak of St. Joseph, her spouse. It is Christ himself who would give such great honor to the Blessed Virgin and to St. Joseph. It is a great poverty for us as a church if we were to forget to give them due honor as Christ did. We always follow in his footsteps. In addition to this, Christ honored in fulfillment of the fourth commandment, those, and we continue to do so. It is not only a great poverty for us as Catholics, but for any Christian to fail to give due honor to the Blessed Virgin, who is now our mother, and St. Joseph, who is the earthly father and forever will be of Christ. It is a severe poverty as well to forget to recognize the glory of God in his saints in general. It is a severe poverty to exclude them from our prayers. They are our brothers and sisters. So thirdly, we recognize the important role of the apostles, that the church has been founded upon them, that they have a particularly essential and beautiful role in being instruments. As I continue to move back to this idea of instruments, there is a term called instrumental cause. So if you have Michelangelo, let's say, who is using a chisel in order to make this great and beautiful statue called the Pietà. The Pietà is a statue of the Blessed Virgin holding her son after he had died and been taken down from the cross. This beautiful image is done by St. Michael. He is the one that people appreciate. He is the one that people remember. He is the most particularly important in the making of this statue while at the same time, he did use a chisel, he did use a hammer, he did use various instruments in order to make this, and he could not have done it with just his bare hands. He needed the instruments to do so. So analogously, we look at this. It is only God that receives the worship from us. It is only God who is deserving of the worship. It is only God who is, is, is the author of salvation, and it is only him by which it is possible to be saved, through whom it is possible to be saved. However, he, in his great benevolence, that is his good will, his love, and his mercy, he chooses to use instruments. And so many saints, many people, many martyrs, many evangelists, many prophets are the instrumental cause. They're the chisel or the hammer by which one or other or many has come into the church, has been saved because of baptism and many other sacraments received. So in the same way, we look at the saints and we recognize even more than we would recognize a hammer or a chisel of, Saint Mi of Michelangelo, not St. Michelangelo, but of Michelangelo. Likewise, we look at the saints, but with greater appreciation because they chose. They cooperated with the grace of God. They, through their free will, were ones who acted as an instrument for God to use them as a vessel in any way he saw fit. And we as humans know how difficult that is. In our weakness, we constantly fall. We constantly choose our will above God's in our sins. We recognize and appreciate their role in salvation history. How many people, how many fewer people would be saved? How many fewer souls would be in heaven if we didn't have people like St. Peter or St. Paul or any of the apostles or the Blessed Virgin, especially, or St. Joseph, or any of these saints. So many are saved because of them, but not by them, not by their power, always by the grace of God, always by the goodness of God. So we recognize and we appreciate and we venerate their role, but we do not worship them. We do, therefore, 
recognize that the mass is intimately connected with their actions because grace flows through the mass, transforms souls and hearts, and enables us then to live out the mass by bringing other people to God, by loving it and serving in the way that we should. So bringing them into the mass by using their names, by mentioning so many of them that represent many other saints as well, is right and just and a good and holy thing to do. It is good for us to always remember we are not only in union with those that are there at the church or those that are on earth, the church militant. We are in union with all that are in the state of grace here on earth. We are in union with all of those that are in purgatory and all of those in glory in heaven. Always coming back to that reality because that's the most beautiful reality that God has given us in being church. This union that spans throughout and past the limitations of death. So thirdly, as I said, we recognize the important role of all of the apostles and then from them also the other saints. So we springboard off of them, in a sense, into the other saints. Through them, we have received both the infallible words of the New Testament along with the necessary tradition, capital T tradition, which is or which are those two, scripture and tradition, the two pillars necessary for the deposit of faith to both have it as well as for it to be protected and passed on as it should. Without the deposit of faith, salvation is not possible. We must ascend and believe what has been passed on from Christ to us. There is an emphasis on St. Peter, who is the first pope, and the rock upon which the church is built, and Paul, who are mentioned particularly first as well. Paul, because of his great zeal and efforts for evangelization, which are unmatched in the church. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10 for greater information on that. Lastly, we mentioned 12 martyrs of the early church. Five of them are popes, Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus, Cornelius. We also mentioned one bishop, St. Cyprian, who is a particularly distinguished bishop of Carthage, a deacon, St. Lawrence, who is still highly extolled in Rome because of his magnificent, sacrifice of self, his incredible ability both in life as well as in his death to remain God's, to be truly holy, to be a witness that truly gives love as a sign of God within him. And it's very impressive what uh, St. Lawrence and what, in fact, all of these saints truly accomplished in life as well as in their death Martyrdom is so uniquely united to the church. And that's why after we mention our Blessed Virgin, who, we should say, is the greatest of martyrs, although she did not die in body by way of giving her blood, she died a most painful death in her soul in the sense of the crucifixion of our Lord. That what she suffered there was far greater, far more severe, far uh, more intense of a suffering than any martyr has ever undergone. She suffered as human persons go. She suffered more than any other human person. Christ alone, divine person, two natures, human and divine, Christ alone suffered greater than her. But she suffered more than any other human person. So she also is understood to be a great, and in fact, the greatest of all martyrs. After this deacon, St. Lawrence, then five laymen, St. Chrysogonus, John, and Paul, they were brothers in Rome, Cosmas and Damien, they were brothers as well, and doctors. 
The martyrs always have a close connection, as I said, to the Mass because of the way in which they give their life, which is an image of the way in which Christ has given His. It is fitting to acknowledge certain and distinguished martyrs considering the Mass is the representation, the representing of the death of Christ. St. Tertullian says, quote, We multiply when you harvest us. The blood of Christians is seed. End quote. Many people have altered this or changed this or whatnot to say that the seed of the, or the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But what Tertullian actually says is, we multiply when you reap us. That is, when you kill us, we multiply. We continue to grow because the blood of Christians is seed. It gives birth. It germinates and uh, sprouts into more and more Christians, more and more sanctity, more and more salvation. Likewise, using all of these saints the 12 martyrs, the apostles, the name of the Blessed Virgin and St. Joseph, we find a universal call to holiness. It is laymen, it is bishops, deacons, priests, popes, etc. that are mentioned in the context of the Mass. After a while, after the transubstantiation, we'll go through another prayer where more martyrs are mentioned there as well. Again, speaking of priests, deacons, as well as uh, martyrs that are lay, lay people. All people are called to holiness. And the church has always professed this and always understood this, even within the Mass, even within the Roman canon, the first Eucharistic prayer, we find laymen as well as clergy mentioned as martyrs in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. This is the conclusion of the first prayer. We have discussed first beginning with the preface and then the Holy Holy Holy, which is this conclusion of the preface that both move us into the Roman Canon. And we only had time today to cover the first prayer of the Roman Canon, which is a somewhat lengthy prayer, as well as an incredibly beautiful prayer in which we pray for the Holy Mother Church in general, ourselves, as well as various people that have been indebted or commended themselves to our prayers, as well as our family and friends. We remember the saints and the martyrs in a particular way in all of the ways in which they have participated for the sake of our salvation, as well as they continue to participate. And that's important, as well as they continue to participate in our salvation, especially by joining and uniting with us to sing holy, holy, holy Lord God of heaven and earth in every mass. May the blessed angels, may the blessed saints, be with us and near us and protect us this day and always. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May God bless you.